According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me one last time today in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 14. We are going to cover 14, 15, and 16. And uh, the title for this day is The Day of Atonement. Of course, that comes from chapter 16. The, uh, the biggest item on today's reading list, of course, not to minimize what's happening in chapter 14 or 15, but the big theology, the big guns, uh, get centered there on that 16th chapter. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer, dedicating our time for the glory of Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we come before you once again, thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for this time together. Rejoicing, Father, in your faithfulness to bless the time of study. We thank you that you honor your word and you uphold your word at every occasion, at every opportunity. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we've got to wrap up the last of chapter 14. Remember, we're still dealing with uh, discharges, bodily discharges, leprosy, other conditions, conditions of the body, as well as conditions of clothing and households. Uh, things like mold and uh, mildew and things of that nature. Um, just as bodies and clothing can exhibit sarath, got to try to get better on my pronunciation there, so too can houses. And so uh, in chapter 14 from verses 33 down through 53, you have the problem with sarath in the houses. So the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, When you enter the land of Canaan, which I give to you for possession, and I put a mark of leprosy on a house in the land of your possession, a mark of the tzaknarath in the house of the land of your possession, then the one who owns the house shall come and tell the priest, saying, Something like a mark of leprosy has become visible to me in the house. So the priest shall then command that they empty the house before the priest goes in to look at the mark, so that everything in the house need not become unclean, Afterward, the priest shall go in to look at the house. And it's actually smart on their part because as soon as he pronounces it unclean, it's time to demolish. But he, they can salvage the items that are inside the house so they're not touching anything that has been declared to be unclean. So he shall look at the mark, and if the mark on the walls of the house has greenish or reddish depressions and appears deeper than the surface, then the priest shall come out of the house to the doorway and quarantine the house for seven days. The priest shall return on the seventh day and make an inspection if the mark has indeed spread on the walls of the house. Oh, one side trip. Have you noticed in several of these passages when it says for seven days and then it says on the seventh day, okay? Um, or for three days and then on the third day. That's a normal way of counting to the Hebrew people. And uh, sometimes it'll say on the eighth day, but more often than not, it's for seven days and then on the seventh day. And uh, that, that's the more common expression. That just comes into play later on when folks are get mocking about Jesus and his resurrection after three days, but it's also on the third day. It's the same expression as we understand it there. Anyway, that's a side trip. We'll, we'll get back to that when we get to the resurrection of Jesus. Um, so the priest comes back on the seventh day and uh, makes an inspection. If the mark has indeed spread on the walls of the house, then the priest shall order them to tear out the stones with a mark in them and throw them away at an unclean place outside the city. He shall have the house scraped all around inside. They shall dump the plaster that they scrape off in an unclean place outside the city. Then they shall take other stones, replace those stones, and he shall take other plaster and replaster the house." If, however, the mark breaks out again in the house after he has torn out the stones and scraped the house, and after it has been replastered, then the priest shall come in and make an inspection. If he sees that the mark has indeed spread in the house, it is a malignant mark in the house. It is unclean. He shall therefore tear down the house, its stones, its timbers, all its plaster of the house. He shall take them outside the city to an unclean place. And remember, this is not hygiene. This is not the health inspector. This is the priest. This is the spiritual life inspector. The land that they're taking over has been given over to demonism for 400 years. It is a land that is quite literally haunted with spiritual malignant forces that have held sway for all this time. And so the priests are identifying the curse upon these houses and they are demolishing it. 
So whoever goes into the house during the time that he has quarantined it becomes unclean until evening. Whoever lies down in the house shall wash his clothes. Whoever eats in the house shall wash his clothes. If, on the other hand, the priest comes in and makes the inspection, the mark has not spread in the house after the house has been replastered, then the priest shall pronounce the house clean because the mark has not reappeared. To cleanse the house, then, he shall take two birds and cedar wood and a scarlet string and a hyssop. Remember this procedure? One bird dies, the other bird bathes in the blood of the dead bird. He shall slaughter the one bird in an earthenware vessel over running water. He shall then take the cedar wood and the hyssop and the scarlet string with the live bird and dip them in the blood of the slain bird as well as the running water and sprinkle the house seven times. He shall thus cleanse the house with the blood of the bird and with the running water along with the live bird and with the cedar wood and with the hyssop and with the scarlet string. However, he shall let the live bird go free outside the city to the open field so he shall make atonement for the house and it will be clean. All right, so pretty similar to the other elements we saw for clothing and for uh, bodily uh, marks. So this is the law. Chapter 14 closes with a summary paragraph for the Tzatgarath. The summary paragraph for the Tzatgarath. Verses 54 through 57. Leprosy, mildew, mold all speak to the sinful corruption of this fallen world. They are the visible testimony to this fallen world of corruption visually evidenced manifestations of hygienically unclean conditions and therefore prohibitive to functioning within a ceremonially clean theocratic way of life. Prohibitive to functioning within a ceremonially clean theocratic way of life. So this is the law for any mark of leprosy, even for a scale and for the leprous garment or house and for a swelling and for a scab and for a bright spot to each when they are unclean and when they are clean, this is the law of leprosy. So it is spiritual, far more than anything medical as we understand these issues here. All right, so that wraps up the leprosy in uh, chapter 14. We have additional clean and unclean bodily um, discharges. Okay, so it's going to be a fun class. We'll try to rush through this and get to the Day of Atonement stuff. Um, In any event, the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. This moreover shall be the uncleanness of his discharge. It is his uncleanness, whether his body allows it to discharge to flow or whether his body obstructs its discharge. Every bad, so in either way, either case, Every bed on which the person with a discharge lies becomes unclean, and everything on which he sits becomes unclean. Anyone, moreover, who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And whoever sits on the things on which the man with a discharge has been sitting shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. So it's a self-cleansing process. The, the, the bathing must take place, the clothes uh, washing must take place, and then until evening, because it resets with the, uh, the day that begins at sundown. Unclean until evening. And whoever touches the person with a discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Or if the man with a discharge spits on one who is clean, he too shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. All right, even spitting. Every saddle on which the person with a discharge rides becomes unclean. Whoever then touches any of the things which were under him shall be unclean until evening. And he who carries them shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Likewise, whomever the one with the discharge touches without having rinsed his hands in water shall wash his hands and clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. However, an earthenware vessel which the person with a discharge touches shall be broken. And every wooden vessel shall be rinsed in water. We saw that before. The earthenware vessels had to be broken. Not scrubbed, not washed, broken. And, and, and I've read different things on this and different opinions on what's the, what's the problem with the earthenware vessel. And, and really it's, it's, a, it's a curious thing because we also are earthenware vessels, right? Uh, Adam was made of dust. We have this treasure in earthenware vessels. And so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting you know, the wooden vessel gets, uh, gets, uh, gets to be scrubbed out, but the earthenware vessel has to be broken. 
Let's get a few more verses down. I guess down to verse 15 and we'll start looking at those notes. So when the man with the discharge becomes cleansed from his discharge, then he shall count off for himself seven days for his cleansing. He shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in running water and will become clean. Then on the eighth day he shall take for himself two turtle doves or two young pigeons and come before the Lord to the doorway of the tent of meeting and give them to the priest. And the priest shall offer them one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf before the Lord because of the discharge. All right. We'll stop there because there is a transition between verse 15 and verse 16. So everything that we've studied already, the concept of ceremonial uncleanness for skin diseases, it's now carried into other bodily discharges. The first section centers on abnormal male discharges, i.e. the uh, venereal diseases or other consequences for carnality. And um, by the way, it's not called, it's called STD, and even STD has been updated these days. It's called STI, and they keep changing the, the language every 10 years or so, and I'm just tired of paying attention to what they're doing. So I'm going to stick with venereal disease. How about that? That goes back 50 years or more, and that goes back to uh, testify to Venus as the goddess of uh, fornication and, and whatever else. So uh, maybe we can single-handedly bring venereal disease back into common usage for uh, these kind of descriptions. All right, uh, sin offering and a burnt offering were necessary in these uh, these issues. But the second section centers on the normal male discharge as a consequence of sexual activity. So we have the abnormal, then we have the normal. And the normal described here in verses 16 and following if a man has a seminal emission, he shall bathe all his body in water and be unclean until evening. As for any garment or any leather on which there is seminal emission, it shall be washed with water and be unclean until evening. If a man lies with a woman so there is a seminal emission, they shall both bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Again, this is not hygiene. This is spiritual clean versus unclean status before the holy God in the functioning of the covenant nation of Israel in their corporate worship. Okay, And it's, this is normal marital relations between a husband and a wife. So no sacrifice is necessary. We're not taking a, a bird for a sin offering or a bird for a, a burnt offering or anything. Other. There's no atonement that's happening here in this. It's just that they engaged in this activity and they, uh, the, they pay the consequences of being ceremonially unclean until they wash and until nightfall, until uh, evening. So, even though the sexual activity may be the sanctified and holy relations between a husband and a wife, the physical discharge left the man ceremonially unclean. And again, we talk about the distinctions. I keep trying to stress, bios life is one thing, zoe life is something else. That when we have bios life, that's our, that's our biology, that's our earthly life, that's our career, that's our work, that's our home, that's our family, that's, uh, that's all the earthly temporal realities that we have in this world. But our spiritual life is supposed to be above and beyond. It's supposed to be um, prioritized. It's supposed to have the preeminence in our thinking. So when push comes to shove, it's our bios life that goes to the back seat, and the Zoe life should be center stage in all of our attention, all of our thinking. And so we see the issue here. And it would mean, it would mean that as the holidays are approaching, you know, as the, you can track it on the calendar and watch as the, as, uh, the Day of Atonement, as uh, the Feast of Trumpets, as, as the Passover and, and all these things, you've got them marked out. You're, you're working towards them. You're preparing before them. You know that, hey, it's coming up. We have to stay ceremonially clean. Then the husband and wife have to factor that into their routine, into their, their uh, family business. And, uh, and, and realize that this earthly things can be set aside so that the spiritual things can have the priority. All right, the third section, verses 19 through 24, centers on the normal female discharge. This chapter is actually structured in what's called a chiasm. It's structured in an in a ABBA format. So there's the abnormal male and the normal male, and then emissions. And then there's 
the normal female emission and then the abnormal female emission. And so it, it kind of forms a poetic uh, structure like that. It, just, it happens fairly frequently in the Old Testament and it's not unusual here in any way. So the woman has a discharge. Uh, and this is normal. This happens every month. This is, this is what women do. Uh, her discharge in her body is blood. She shall continue in her menstrual impurity for seven days. Whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. That's why there's some verses that make me laugh sometimes when it says uh, this holy day is coming near, whatever, do not go near a woman, right? Or don't touch a woman, okay? Which, you know, when I was a little kid, I thought it was like cooties or something and it made me laugh. But, you know, and then you, you learn a few other things as you get older. Anyway, everything she lies on. So do you sleep in the same bed she sleeps in? It means that you have the same ceremonial status that she has. In, uh, in this particular time. Anyone who touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Whether it be on the bed or on the thing on which she is sitting, when she t- he touches it, he shall be unclean until evening. And this, you remember Rachel lied to her dad about um, when she had stolen the household idols and she was sitting on the saddle. Well, that's something she's sitting on. And in that culture of the ancient world, Laban was going nowhere near that, okay? Even in the modern world, men are leery on different things. All right. Whether it be on the bed or on the thing on which she's sitting, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until evening. If a man actually lies with her, actually has intercourse, so that her menstrual impurity is on him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. So that's the paragraph there. So we've had the abnormal male, the normal male, the normal female, and now the abnormal female emissions or discharges in uh, 25 through 30. If a woman has a discharge of her blood many days, not at the period of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond that period, all the days of her impure discharge, she shall continue as though in her menstrual impurity she is unclean. Any bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge shall be to her like her bed at menstruation. Everything on which she sits shall be unclean like her uncleanness at that time. Likewise, whoever touches them shall be unclean, shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. When she becomes clean from her discharge, she shall count off for herself seven days and afterward she will be clean. Then on the eighth day, she shall take for herself two turtle doves or two young pigeons and bring them into the priest to the doorway of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall offer for the one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering. Remember there were sacrifices in the first paragraph too for the male who had the abnormal um, uh, emissions. So the priest shall make atonement on her behalf before the Lord because of her impure discharge. Alright, so we have the issue there. The sin offering and the burnt offering were necessary. And it's kind of summarized here at the end of the chapter Thus you shall keep the sons of Israel separated from their uncleanness so that they will not die in their uncleanness by their defiling my tabernacle that is among them. Okay, this, this is the seriousness with which God takes us. Remember, he cannot tolerate iniquity in the solemn assembly. That, he, that God is the God of truth. That God is opposed to the, to the liars. And for these hypocrites, for these phony hypocrites, they're liars that claim to be clean, but they know that they are not. All right, they know that they are not. And even if they think they can get past the Levites, they can get past the priests, who's going to know? Right? Who's going to know that it's, it's uh, Passover and, and I'm ceremonially unclean because of, of, uh, of something? Well, God knows. So if you want to hide it from the Levite and hide it from the priest, you hide it all you want, God knows. And uh, for these uh, Jewish believers to try to pretend they're clean when they know they're unclean, God himself is their, uh, is their judge. So, to keep the sons of Israel separated in their uncleanness so they may not die uh, in their uncleanness by their defiling the tabernacle that is among them. This is the law for the one with a discharge and the man who has a seminal omission so that he is unclean by it. And for the woman who is ill because of menstrual impurity and for the one who has a discharge, whether male or female, or a man who lies with an unclean woman. All right, so that's Leviticus 15. That's our menstruation and discharges chapter. 
Any questions on that? Do we need to have a roundtable discussion? We can, uh, no? All right, we'll, we'll let that go then, all right. All right, Day of Atonement, biggest day of the year. Even in modern times, biggest day of the year. I've got Jewish friends, and this is, this is huge in their, in their life and practice. Okay? It's also kind of sad, actually, because they don't know that Jesus Christ is the once and for all sacrifice. And so they're still observing this annual reminder of their sins. And, and even the phrases they use are, and they find the phrases they use comforting. And they speak them proudly. Uh, in, in terms of being forgiven. And, and uh, a buddy of mine said, oh, I'm so pleased. My, my sins are forgiven for another year. And he was saying it with joy, with, with a thrill. And I'm weeping inside. I'm thinking, man, for another year, my sins are forgiven forever. They are beneath the depths of the sea as far as the east is from the west. They are sealed in a bag. And all the things there. Anyway, Someday maybe I'll get more evangelism opportunities or not with, uh, with some of these folks. All right, so the Day of Atonement, one of the most important features of Mosaic Law. And we have chapter 16 here, verses 1 through 34, that's going to uh, take us through these details. The instructions for the special day were revealed to Moses and relayed to Aaron after the death of Nadab and Abihu, suggesting another cause for their death. There's speculation on that too, but... Um, where it talks about when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died, that they did more maybe than just offering a strange fire. Perhaps they attempted to lift that veil or, or, or look within or, or something in approaching the presence of the Lord, and they died. So um, this message comes after that. That's how quick it was. They hadn't even reached their first day of atonement yet when, uh, when Nadab and Abihu were, were uh, destroyed. So the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil. Remember, Aaron's not the mediator. He's the high priest. And Moses is the one that speaks to God face to face. Moses is the one that gives the instructions to Aaron for how Aaron needs to function here. He shall not enter at any time into the holy place beside the, inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. His, the presence of his glory is deadly to anybody that approaches in the wrong way, which includes any other day except the Day of Atonement. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic, and the linen undergarments shall be next to his body, and he shall be girded with a linen sash and attired with a linen turban. These are the holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for all his household. Remember, this is the step that Jesus didn't have to do because Jesus has no sin himself. But Aaron is a sinner. And if Aaron is going to represent the people, he's got to have a sacrifice for himself. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall cast lots for the two goats, okay? Because one of these is going to make it, and one of them won't. And this is, it seems like it's just a flip of a coin, or it's a lucky toss, or whatever we think of it is. But this is what God has determined for the, uh, the method of determination. So one lot is for the Lord, the other lot is for the scapegoat. And it's kind of sad to me that the modern term scapegoat is, is really wrong. It's not used biblically. It's not used appropriately with respect to the Day of Atonement. The, uh, the, the one goat that's for the Lord is the one that dies, the one that is, is offered up as, a, as, a, as an offering before the Lord. And then the scapegoat is the one that lives. He's the one that takes all the sins upon him and, and is led out into the wilderness. He's never seen again. It's like our sins are never seen again. Jesus takes them away and they're gone. Um, and so really, scapegoat or, or how about lucky goat or, or good goat or happy, uh, happy those sins are gone goat or something, okay? Um, related to that. <laughs> and you understand it takes two goats to paint the picture because Jesus is both. 
Jesus is the goat that dies, facing the wrath of God and the judgment. But then, remember, Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again. He's also the goat that lives. He's the goat that takes the sin away and removes the sin. And, and that, that's that dual picture of what Jesus Christ does, both in dying and in removing the sins and, and departing, you can't have a single goat do both of those pictures. Because once you kill the goat, the goat stays dead. Okay, So it takes both of these goats, the one that dies and the one that lives, in order to paint the entire picture of atonement. So, Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats. And it doesn't say if he uses the Urim and Thummim or what he does. They might just be normal lots, all right? You know, they might just be like the roll of a die, the casting of a stone, the uh, casting of lots. It's, it's, it's a random draw, like the short straw or anything of that nature. We've got scads of examples, and, and still to this day we have different uh, traditions for how to, uh, you know, maybe they played rock, paper, scissors or whatever they did, okay? They had some method of determining a random outcome. And so by determining a random outcome by the casting of lots, they are removing any human manipulation or any human involvement, and it is a total surrender to the sovereignty of God. Because every lot cast is determined by the Lord. There are no accidental dice rolls. There's no accidental... Um, he, God never loses when he's playing uh, roulette or craps or any of those gambling games in, in, uh, in Las Vegas. Because every cast of the dice, the results are the sovereignty of God. That's a verse in the book of Proverbs we saw not too long ago. So Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats. One of them's going to die, one of them's going to live, and it's God's choice who lives and who dies. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. This is the only place where we see in the Old Testament a living sacrifice. Okay, But we understand because of Romans 12 and the New Testament that we are the present church age living sacrifices. We present ourselves before God as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, our spiritual service of worship. We have, we are the living sacrifices today because our Savior was the once and for all sacrifice who died and rose again on our behalf. So Aaron shall offer the bowl of the sin offering which is for himself and make atonement for himself and for his household, and he shall slaughter the bowl of the sin offering, which is for himself. He shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense, and bring it inside the veil. And you got to wonder, <laughs> I mean, this first time he ever does it, talk about faith, right? Talk about, I mean, especially since Nadab and Abihu have already dropped dead by this point. And he's going in there with every, all the procedures as Moses commands. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony, otherwise he will die. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat, on the east side, also in front of the mercy seat. He shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. And by the way, I think sometimes when we say one man goes in there one day a year, sometimes we think he goes in there one time one day a year, and that's technically not true. He's going to have multiple trips in and out on that one day a year that he can go in there. Because he goes in first with a bull, then he's got to go back out and slaughter the goat. He's got to go back in the second time. And he'll slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. That's outside. That's in the courtyard. That's by that first altar. And bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did within the blood of the bull. So no animals are getting killed inside the veil. There's no death that happens inside the veil. The, the, the animals are being killed outside. The blood is what's brought inside. Sprinkle it on the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. He shall make atonement for the holy place. 
because of the impurities of the sons of Israel, because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. Thus he shall do for the tent of meeting, which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. This tabernacle sits in the midst of a sinful people. So the tabernacle has to be atoned for. The tabernacle has to be cleansed. So the high priest has to be cleansed. His family has to be cleansed. This tabernacle has to be cleansed. When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. So it's not like you can have you know, priests in the outer chamber while he goes into the inner chamber. He's all alone in this. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord. Are you tracking the in and out here? He goes back out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. So the altar needs to have atonement. The high priest and the priest and the tabernacle and now the altar has to be atoned for. So he goes out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And shall take some of the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides. With his finger he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it and from the impurities of the sons of Israel consecrate it. So it's like 364 days a year This tabernacle sits in the midst of sinful people. This altar sits in the midst of sinful people. But for this one day, by following these procedures, the God of righteousness is going to reckon, reckon, mind you, the high priest as being cleansed. The tabernacle is being cleansed. The altar is being cleansed. In the reckoning of God, he is going to credit it as cleansed. All right, let's uh, make sure I'm not getting ahead of myself here. Approaching the holiness of God under any circumstances besides the procedure spelled out here results in immediate physical death. You know, you think about mortality standing before the glory of God's immortality and the glory of God's incorruption. The purity and the holiness of God and the righteousness of God and for a sinner to stand before that would be like uh, you know entering into a nuclear reactor and thinking... Uh, thinking that was a smart idea. All right. This activity, Aaron's activity is done by himself as the remaining priests are dismissed from the tabernacle. He's got to do this by himself. This is a one-man job. Everybody, nobody else can do this. He's the only man qualified to do this. He's the only man that God expects to do this. Aaron is to enter into the holy place with a bowl for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to bathe his body and put on a simple set of linen attire. In fact, it says it seems to be a different uniform than his normal high priest uniform. He's going in in the simple uh, set of linen attire. And he's to take from the congregation of Israel two male goats for the sin offering and one ram for the burnt offering. He provides the bowl for his own sin offering himself to make atonement for himself and for his household. He presents both male goats before the Lord. He casts the lot for the two goats. One is selected for sacrifice. One is selected for the living sacrifice. The scapegoat, the one who bears away the iniquity of the people. And it's just pathetic. You know, that today we use a scapegoat as somebody that gets the blame to take the heat for whatever that, you know, uh, it was really somebody else's bad decision, but, you know, um, someone else will take the fall. Like he's a patsy, he's a, he's a chump, you know. So this uh, scapegoat here is not a chump. He's not a patsy. It's a beautiful picture of what our Savior does in uh, bearing away the iniquity of the people. Aaron is to slaughter the bowl of the sin offering for himself and for the atonement of his household. Then the coals and incense on the altar of incense will obscure the glory of the Lord above the mercy seat. So it's, it's like as if by making it extra cloudy, extra smoky with the, uh, the incense, all right, that it's going to provide a protective uh, you know, cloud cover, a protective barrier uh, against the, the, the Shekinah, against the glory that's sitting there ready to incinerate the wrong person coming in on the wrong day. The blood of the sin offering is sprinkled seven times on the mercy seat. Aaron then slaughters the goat of the sin offering. 
for the atonement of the people and for the tabernacle itself. This is now his second trip into the the Holy of Holies. The first one was the bull, the second one here with the goat. The blood of the sin offering is again sprinkled on the mercy seat. Remember that's our term, the kaporeth, the place of kafar, the place of atonement. It's a term that refers to Jesus as the mercy seat in the New Testament. Then it's time for the living sacrifice in verses 20 through 22. So let's go ahead and read some more of these verses. We got down through verse 18. So he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord to make atonement for it. Shall take some of the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat, put it on the horns of the altar on all sides. With his finger he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it from the impurities of the sons of Israel and consecrate it. All right, now for the scapegoat, the live goat. When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. So the priesthood is cleansed, is atoned for, the, ta- the tent is atoned for, the altar is atoned for. All right, now it's time for the live goat worship. So Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. This is part of what we were talking about earlier. Why is there a sin offering and a transgression offering, a trespass offering, the guilt offering? Why do we have both chapter 4 and chapter 5? They're both dealt with here in the atonement. And he has to confess while he's laying his hands on this goat head. And uh, lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. And I love this. By the hand of a man who stands in readiness. Who's that? You know? Imagine it's a different man from year to year. And to be selected for a duty like this. I expect it was likely it was a priest. Uh, Possibly it was the, um, maybe it was the, the heir of the high priest, maybe it was the, the son who would someday himself be a high priest, we don't know. But it is a man who stands in readiness. And I think there's, I don't know, we can, we can probably adapt this in, in uh, some doctrinal applications without a whole lot of work, we could think about it. We don't want to allegorize or try to make something up. But it is a principle that we're to stand in readiness, are we not? We're to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We're to stand in readiness. We should ever be ready to give an account for the hope that is within us, yet with fear and reverence. The idea of being made ready, we're always standing in readiness. We're ready for the trumpet to sound. We're ready to be face to face with Jesus Christ, to stand in readiness. I love it. God uses prepared people. So the best thing we can do is stay prepared uh, all day, every day in our, uh, in our walk with the Lord. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. So what happens to the goat after that? The story doesn't say, right? We want to think that, you know, he lived happily ever after, (laughs) you know, that uh, he's off in a nice land of whatever. Uh, No, he's he's a lonely goat in the wilderness, and I suspect that he'll get eaten by some predator, uh, in due course. All right. Does that hurt your feelings? Make you sad? It's just a goat. Okay. All right. So the points of study here in the outline he identifies with the goat, confesses the sins of Israel over the scapegoat's head. Remember, we're, we're only partway through this ritual. The, the, uh, the, priesthood has been atoned for, the tent has been atoned for, the altar has been atoned for. We've got more to do here. And he identifies with the goat and confesses the sins of Israel over the scapegoat's head. An unidentified Levite stands ready and leads the scapegoat into the wilderness. And that's what I thought 20 years ago. I don't see any reason to change it. Just an, uh, it's, a, it's a prepared man who's here to assist the, the, uh, the priesthood in what they're doing. That's what the Levites were supposed to be for. The scapegoat carries away the sins of Israel never to be seen again. And praise God, my sins are paid for and when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, he's not going to stand there with a long list of my sins because they're done, they're gone. He doesn't want to remember them ever again and the God the Father never wants to remember them ever again. 
So both the sacrificial goat and the scapegoat picture Christ who did both jobs himself, dying for our sins and carrying them away. Aaron then returns to the holy place and bathes again, dresses in his normal high priestly garments this time, and returns to the courtyard for the final offerings. So let's go through these verses. So Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and he shall leave them there. And uh, not a problem being naked. Remember, nobody else is on hand. <laughs> he's, he's doing this all by his lonesome. He shall bathe his body with water in a holy place and put on his clothes and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. Then he shall offer up and smoke the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The one who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Then afterward he shall come into the camp. But the bowl of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be taken outside the camp and they shall burn their hides, their flesh, and their refuse in the fire. Then the one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Then afterward he shall come into the camp. All right, so there's a lot of moving parts on this. Verses 29 and following then. Get the outline updated. The assistant who led away the scapegoat returns, washes, and comes into a camp. The assistant who burned the remainder of the sin offering outside the camp returns, washes, and comes into the camp. And then we have the timing for this as a perpetual sacrifice. Okay, Remember the, the Passover was perpetual and it was commemorating the night of their deliverance from Egypt. That we have Nisan was established as the first month of the year. That we have the, uh, the 10th day to select the lamb, the 14th day to eat the lamb. And all of that was the, was the commemoration of their deliverance from Egypt. That's what Passover speaks to. This is in the seventh month. This is one of the fall feasts that we deal with. So this shall be a permanent statute for you in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month. You shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. So this is in the seventh month. This puts it in the fall. This is If, if Passover is in March or April, then this puts uh, 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 atonement in uh, September or October time frame. October most years. All right. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. So it's a national holiday for everybody. It is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Remember, during the year, throughout the course of the year, there were a lot of sins that couldn't be atoned for. There were a lot of sins, the high-handed sins, the willful sins, the defiant sins that, that weren't eligible for sin offerings or trespass offerings. There was just nothing Levitical that could be done for those. So this gets them rebooted for the year. This is the like rebooting a Windows machine and just bringing it back up and starting it over again. And they get the national do-over on the Day of Atonement. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. So imagine, I mean, the high priest is pretty busy. He's got a lot of work he's doing and he's got a couple of assistants that are doing a lot of things. But you've got a population, the entire nation of Israel that's on holiday this day. They're not working. What are they doing? They're in their homes. They're with their families. This is their uh, Sabbath of solemn rest that you may humble your souls as a permanent statute. So the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. He shall thus put on the linen garments, the holy garments. And this is where now we start to see the language of who, who's the next one, who's the one in line that's going to be taking the father's place there. Make atonement for the holy sanctuary, shall make atonement for the tent of meeting, for the altar, shall make atonement for the priest, for all the people of the assembly. You shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year. And just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he did. All right, well that gets us to the end of the chapter. On the tenth day of the seventh month, it was called Tishri. It had other names as well, depending on the older names and Babylonian names that they borrow and bring into, uh, into usage. It is the day of national atonement for Israel, holy to natives and aliens within Israel's borders. Now remember, Passover 
was a memorial. It was a testimony to something in their past that had already happened that they were using the the Passover uh, holiday to commemorate that, to think back and to remember that. That's Passover in the spring looking back to something already done. Atonement in the fall, what's that looking to? Is it looking back to something already done? No, it's looking forward to something that will be done. Okay? And it's looking forward, it's not technically, it's not even looking forward to the cross. Because it's looking for the cross is where the blood was shed, but the cross is not where the blood was applied. So in the day of atonement, they're looking forward to the application of the blood of the cross, whereby the blood of the covenant will be applied to the Jewish people, whereby the millennium can officially begin. They cannot enter into the millennium until they call upon him whom they crucified. And so in the fall, as we're looking forward to the fall feast, there are many who think that in the the fall feasts are typological of the future things that have yet to happen. So the second advent will happen in the fall. The uh, establishment of the millennial kingdom will happen in the fall. There are some folks who insist that the rapture has to happen on the, not the Day of Atonement, but on the Feast of Trumpets, on Rosh Hashanah, uh, some particular year in uh, whenever that happens. See, which I don't hold to that. Seems to me like the rapture could happen today, could happen at any moment, could happen at any time. It doesn't have to be on the Feast of Trumpets, but we'll talk about that. When we get to chapter, remind me, when we get to chapter 23, we're going to discuss why did the church age begin on a Jewish holiday? Pentecost was a Jewish holiday. So why did the church begin on a Jewish holiday? And now you've got some time to think about it before we get there, okay? And uh, I'll be curious if you come up with any answers. I'll tell you what I think, but that and uh, you know, five bucks will get you a Starbucks. So, it is a day of national atonement for Israel, holy to natives and aliens within Israel's borders. And understand this, if you're an Egyptian, do you have a day of atonement anywhere? If you're a Roman, if you're a Greek, if you're a German, I mean, whatever you are, when's your day of atonement? You don't have one. You don't have one. Um, unless you happen to be an alien within Israel's borders. Maybe you go visit uh, at the right time of year and you can participate in an atonement at that point. But really, what would that then accomplish? You want to leave yourself ceremonially clean in order for it to function in Israel's Levitical worship system for the remainder of that year? Or what, what are you really going to do as an atoned Gentile in this system? All right. See, so much is alien to us because we're spoiled. We are in the church age reality where it, it is irrelevant if you're uh, white or black or, or red or brown or, or American or African or Egyptian. or I mean, it just it doesn't matter. We're in Christ. So we are uh, we're no longer in Adam. We are in Christ. We are a new creation. We are a heavenly citizenship. All the earthly boundaries and, and ethnicities and all of that is irrelevant in the church age. All right, the statute is a permanent statute. Verse 31 and verse 34 say it's permanent. So when does it end? Will they, in fact, be conducting this ceremony in the millennial kingdom? Okay, well, they will Passover, right? They're going to have Passover throughout the millennium. They're going to have other animal rituals throughout the millennium. In fact, one particular line of Aaron is especially blessed. It's called the, the line of Zadok. Zadok was the faithful priest in David's lifetime. And so the Aaronic priesthood gets kind of rebooted, if you will, as a Zadokite priesthood. It's the descendants of Zadok that have uh, the, the privileges and glories of priesthood in the millennial kingdom. So stay tuned. So, the pre- uh, so yeah. We get down to the end of the chapter. It's a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he did. The Lord Jesus Christ did not have a particular ministry concerning the Day of Atonement for Israel during his first advent 
incarnation. In fact, never does it mention in any of the the life of Christ, in any of the gospel records, he uh, participated in Passover several times. He would go up to Jerusalem for the Passover. Uh, There was one occasion shortly before his death, six months before his crucifixion, that his brothers urged him to go up to the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Trump of uh, Booths that leads up to the uh, Day of Atonement. But he did not have a particular ministry during the Day of Atonement for Israel, at least recorded in the Gospels, during his first Advent incarnation. The fulfillment of the feast in the person and work of Jesus Christ is awaiting the second Advent. And we're going to demonstrate this in Leviticus 23 when we give the full calendar of how they structured their year, starting with Passover, then the Feast of Weeks, and then the uh, the Pentecost, the, the uh, Feast of the Ingathering, the first fruits and the Ingathering, and then into the fall when we get into trumpets and booths and Day of Atonement. So the fulfillment of this feast and the person and work of Jesus Christ is awaiting the second advent. And uh, we'll be dealing with this. And this is a little bit hard, and, and some folks struggle with this. Because, um, again, we're spoiled. We're, we're church-age saints. We have uh, not shadow, but substance. And we have, for us, to tell us die means it is finished, which means we're saved and, and the work is done, and, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's great to be us, okay? But it's hard. We've got to think of it in these terms. The, the to die work is finished as far as the shedding of the blood, but the application of that blood, has that happened yet? Well, yeah, for us it's happened, but for Israel has that happened yet? Remember on the night in which he's betrayed, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. That hasn't been applied yet. That's why I took the time in, in Exodus, do you remember? Exodus 23? Are you tired of looking at this? So the, uh, was it 23? Or do I have the wrong chapter? 24. Oh goodness, I just fumble fingers today. All right, here we go, it's 24, Exodus 24. All right, so in these early verses of the chapter, Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord And all the ordinances and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Remember that? This was not what Israel was saying when they crucified their Messiah. When they crucified their Messiah, they said, crucify him. They said, release Barabbas. What shall be done to this Jesus who is called Christ? They said, crucify him. And Pilate washed his hands and said, his blood's not on my hands. And they said, his blood be on our, on our hands, on us and on our children. But notice, for the blood to be applied, for the covenant to be enacted, the people have to be on positive volition. They've got to be ready for this. They've got to be prepared to accept it. All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with the twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Are we willing to accept that when Jesus was dying on the cross, his blood was doing multiple things? And we tend to just so focus on, ooh, on what I get out of it, okay? That the blood of Jesus saved me. And the blood of Jesus keeps on cleansing me from all sin. That's actually two things that the blood of Jesus does on my account. The positional cleansing and the experiential cleansing. The same blood. And so if the blood of Christ can do multiple things on my account, might the blood of Christ also do multiple things on other people's account as well, like Israel? Like the heavenly temple? We know that it's the blood of Christ that cleanses the heavenly temple. Or how about the angels? The blood of Christ has a reconciliation ministry to the angels that we don't understand, but it's talked about in Colossians 1. The blood of Christ does a lot of things. And all of it was happening in his spiritual death on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. So notice, again, this is in the passing of the Mosaic Covenant 
Remember, this is the, the one that gets replaced by the new covenant. It is the Mosaic covenant that is replaced by the new covenant. Not the Abrahamic, not the Davidic, not uh, Noahic or anything else. It's the new covenant comes to replace the conditional covenant of Mosaic law. That's what's obsolete and growing old and ready to disappear. Are we clear on that? Abrahamic covenant never goes obsolete. Abrahamic covenant never gets old. Abrahamic covenant will never disappear because it's an eternal, unconditional covenant. Likewise with David, Davidic covenant never grows obsolete, never grows old, is never ready to disappear. It is only the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of works, the covenant of law, the covenant that condemns, the covenant that no human could keep. That's the one that is obsolete, growing old, ready to disappear. And that's the one that gets replaced. That's the one that is superseded by the new covenant. Was the church under that Mosaic covenant ever? Never. Never was the church ever under Mosaic law. And so how could we be the fulfillment of what replaces Mosaic law? We can't be. That's it's nonsensical. All right. So Moses takes the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And again they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. They had to state it a second time. I find that interesting. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. Remember, some of the blood went to the altar, but some of the blood was set aside and put in these basins. It was kept aside for a future application. And now we see what it was put aside for. For when the people are ready to be obedient. Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Jesus was citing this text in the upper room when he said that my blood is the blood of the covenant which is shed for you. So Moses went up with Aaron and Nadab and on they go. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to feast. They're going to feast with the Lord on this mountain. And we covered this chapter a few weeks ago, but just to bring it to your mind by way of remembrance, this uh, Day of Atonement is looking forward, is looking forward to the Millennial Kingdom of Jesus Christ, is looking forward to after the Tribulation. Remember, it's going to take, the, it's going to take hell on earth to, to humble Israel. The Jewish people will not be ready for their kingdom until they are absolutely humbled by virtue of the Tribulation. It's going to require that Tribulation to humble them so that they will call upon Him whom they pierced. Still to this day, the, the bulk of Israel, most Jewish people in the world today, they're not looking upon him whom they perished. They still revile him to this day. They're waiting for their Messiah, denying that they crucified their Messiah 2,000 years ago. But they will. They will. They will look upon him whom they perished and they will call upon him so as to be saved. And what a blessing that's going to be. And when they do, when he comes, the blood that's been set aside in those little basins is now ready to be sprinkled. And it's going to be sprinkled on the Jewish people as he brings them under the bond of the covenant. As he brings the new covenant into effect. But not until, not before. Certainly not in the church age. Alright, well this is the uh, Day of Atonement. We will have more to say on this when we get to Leviticus chapter 23. And when we come back for day 55... We'll pick up in uh, Leviticus chapter 17 and uh, day 55 takes us through 17, 18, 19. All right, so we're just moving right along. And we'll have this for day 55, day 56, day 57. That's our midweek services this week on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then we will conclude Leviticus with only the morning sessions of next Sunday. Okay, so that's just three, five more sessions to go gets us through uh, Leviticus 26, the cycles of discipline, national destruction, and Leviticus 27 that concludes the book. And we'll be ready after the lunch break next week to uh, start talking about the book of Numbers and the census figures that are vastly inflated in our uh, traditional Masoretic reading. So we'll, we'll deal with that as well. Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your truth. Thank you for the privilege and blessing that it is to study to show ourselves approved. And we thank you for this marvelous book, Father. We're learning to love Leviticus and we thank you for the, uh, the impressions, the, the powerful impressions that it makes at how uh, disgusting things are to look at. And yet that's sin, Father. Sin is disgusting. And 
And yet you sent your son who, who knew no sin, but he became sin on our behalf. Father, this is uh, just a, a powerful expression of, of your glory and our unworthiness. But Father, we thank you for being faithful. We thank you for making us worthy. We thank you for creating a system by which you may be approached and uh, far greater than how the, uh, the covenant people of the Old Testament could approach you. We have, uh, we have an access now that's far beyond anything that they could ask or think. So we give you the praise and the glory, Father, as believer priests standing in your Son before your face, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.